St. Luke's Gospel, chapter 19, beginning to read at verse 41. As he approached Jerusalem and saw the city, he wept over it and said, If you, even you, had only known on this day what would bring you peace, but now it is hidden from your eyes. The days will come when you, your enemies will build an embankment against you and encircle you and hem you in on every side. They will dash you to the ground, you and the children within your walls. They will not leave one stone on another because you did not recognize the time of God's coming to you. Then he entered the temple area and began driving out those who were selling. It is written, he said to them, my house will be a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of robbers. Every day he was teaching at the temple, and the chief priests, the teachers of the law, and the leaders among the people were trying to kill him. Yet they could not find any way to do it, because all the people hung on his words. But you've turned it into a den of thieves. It's a pretty damning indictment of the temple in Jesus' day. And it's not the first time God complains that his temple has been turned into a robber's lair. The criticism was first made by the prophet Jeremiah. And in those days, the Lord complained about the hypocrisy of the people who came and offered worship in his temple, and they went off to to lie, murder, commit adultery, and worship other gods. Quite simply, in their case, what they professed in God's temple didn't match up with how they lived the rest of the time. This meant that their protestations about their devotion to the temple of the Lord rang hollow and God warned that he would sweep the whole lot away. In Jesus' day, it's hard to be sure precisely what was going on. Clearly, when he visited the temple that day, it felt like more, more like a marketplace than it did a house of prayer. No doubt the original intention of having traders in the temple courts had been to support the sacrificial system. You needed to have suitable animals for sacrifice. And it was far easier to buy an animal there than it was to bring it wherever you'd come from. And traders at the temple would only accept the official Tyrian coinage because that was of high quality. It had to contain at least 94% silver. And the shekel had originally been minted at Tyre, but after the Romans transferred the business to Jerusalem, the Tyrian shekel became the only currency you could use to trade with at the temple. And again, the point was, if you were offering an animal to God, then you honoured God by paying a fair price for it. You didn't buy it with substandard coinage. Um, And so to worship at the temple, you needed to buy a sacrifice. And to buy a sacrifice, you needed to have the right currency. And to get the right currency, you needed to change whatever money you had if you hadn't got Tyrian shekels in your pocket. So it meant a huge amount of, of trade, really, buying and selling of coins, buying and selling of animals. And it may just be 
that it was that that wound Jesus up. There is a view that the market in the temple precincts was a reasonably recent innovation set up by the high priest in direct competition with the official Sanhedrin market which operated on the Mount of Olives. But Jesus' claim that the whole place had been turned into a den of robbers suggests actually that the money changers and the market traders were fleecing the pilgrims by charging inflated prices. And with all these people coining it in, prayer had become sidelined in the temple precincts. And if the market was operating in the court of the Gentiles, that was as far into the temple as any foreign visitors were allowed to go. So prayer, in all that hubbub and noise, was out of the question for them. A visit to the temple meant nothing more than a visit to the marketplace. Others have suggested that the word for thieves Jesus used actually means brigands. And what he was uptight about was the way in which the temple courts were being used as hiding places to store weapons which were being stockpiled for a planned rebellion against Rome at some point in the future. We don't know for sure, but what is sure, what we do know, is that Jesus came to the temple looking for a house of prayer, and he found something very different. And he was unhappy enough to drive all the traders out of the temple in a way that threatened to disrupt the whole sacrificial system. Did the whole process of buying and selling grind to a halt? Did the offering of sacrifice get put on hold while this was going on? Or was it more of a symbolic protest? The fact that he was arrested, wasn't arrested on the spot, suggests that whatever he did might have been more of a small-scale disturbance than a major breach of the peace. And what has any of this got to do with us at Brighton Road? Well, last week was the school holidays. So there were no children's or youth activities taking place on the premises here. But there were still loads going on because we are a busy and active church, and that's a good thing. So Coffee, Cake and Company was open on Monday for people to drop in. The deacons met on Monday evening. Tuesday night we gathered to watch the second episode of the BBC Journey video series. Lunch Club and Craft Club were open on Thursday. The worship group gathered on Thursday night to prepare for today's services. Friday, carers were invited to the friends and family drop-in. Saturday, the make-do and men group were also here. And there was a wide range of different external groups making extensive use of our facilities. Oh, and there was the prayer meeting as well on Wednesday night. There were 14 of us gathering in the chapel to pray. So it's great to see so much going on. And that fulfills the vision you had as a church when you developed these premises. This was to be a building for the community. But the question I want to ask this morning is, is it a house of prayer? And if Jesus came to pay us a call looking for a house of prayer, what would his verdict be? Particularly if he happened to come on one of those weeks when there wasn't a Wednesday night prayer meeting happening in the chapel, which actually is three or four out of every month. Now, I recognise that to some extent that's an artificial and unfair question because most of our praying does not take place within these four walls. We pray in our own homes, uh, we pray in small groups, we pray in prayer triplets, we pray when we're out and about. Yet you could counter-argue, what else is a church building for if not to be a house of prayer? So could we... Should we be creating other opportunities, more opportunities, to gather here to pray? Finding space wouldn't be a problem, because most of the time the main church, this room here, and the chapel are free, because people aren't gathering to pray throughout the course of the week. 
And a little bit of me thinks it would be wonderful if actually finding time to get into the chapel or the sanctuary undisturbed was difficult because there were so many people praying would be rather a good thing. It doesn't need to be large numbers of people. After all, Jesus promised he'd show up and join you if only two or three were gathering in his name. And it doesn't need to be for very long either. Half an hour? And there's no lack of material that could be used as a basis for prayer. There's the monthly prayer diary that's issued. Uh, You could take one of the prayers out of our prayer booklet each time you meet, and that would keep you going for 14 sessions. And there are innumerable other prayer diaries for various mission organisations in circulation, not to mention just reading the Lord's Prayer or one of the Psalms, or praying for the many issues you find in the news. And you don't need the minister to be present every time you meet to prayer. If I did come to every prayer meeting, then I might spend most of my time praying. And you might think that would be a good thing. I don't know. And I think we tend to make a big meal out of prayer sometimes. Oh, I'm not sure how to pray. Prayer doesn't need to be difficult. If you're not sure how to formulate your own prayers, you read a prayer that somebody else has written. You read a scripture. You talk about it with somebody else. You talk about it to God. And if you throw in a cup of coffee as well, it becomes a mini social occasion. Does it take a lot of organisation to do that? Well, maybe it does, if we're honest. Sometimes our diaries are so full that meeting up with someone for a cup of coffee is really difficult to arrange. But nevertheless, if the relationship is a good one, we do manage it from time to time. We manage to meet in town and grab a cup of coffee in one of the coffee shops there. But why not save the cost of two cups of coffee, drink the church's coffee instead, meet here and pray while you're about it? Then you can play your part in making this a house of prayer. Now, I know how this works, okay, There are people who pray extensively who are going to go home and beat themselves over the head because they're not praying enough. I don't want to make anybody here feel guilty or put people under pressure. If you have a prayer routine that works for you, then please just continue with it. Don't feel you have to sandwich in even more. But there are some of us who think, actually, yeah, I could. I could pray a bit more. And if, 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 if you wanted to play your part... In making this a house of prayer, it doesn't have to be a big deal. I would love for there to be a culture where popping down the church to pray is as natural and easy as popping out the shops to buy a pint of milk. Now, you don't need to come to church to pray. God is always available, even in those hard-to-reach places where there's no network signal at all. But at the DVD viewing of Journey on Tuesday night, we were saying there's something about being in a building, the walls of which have been steeped in prayer. And that should be true of this place. And it's important, isn't it, I think, because we've said, as part of our vision for Brighton Road, that we aspire for everything we do to be underpinned by prayer. Everything to be prayed about and supported by prayer. Is that the case? I suppose the test might be, if we stopped praying about what we're doing, if we just didn't, didn't pray at all, would we notice any difference? Or would things carry on pretty much as they are? If we cancelled all our prayer meetings and things rolled on pretty much the same and there was no change, that would point to one or two conclusions. One, it would show that prayer is just a waste of time, which is something that any atheists in our congregation might believe. 
But the other conclusion is actually, does prayer really underpin everything we do then? If we're carrying on and we stop praying and we don't see any difference, to what extent are we really underpinning everything that we do as a church in prayer? Because if that were true and we stopped praying, we would notice the difference straight away. And if prayer is not underpinning everything we do, it means we're, we're beavering away, but we're not actually building in the right place. We're not cooperating with the Spirit of God who, who may have plans for something totally different. So whatever your work in the church is, and I know that church keeps us all pretty busy, let me invite you to reflect upon the question, to what extent is what I do underpinned, undergirded, supported, founded on prayer. Now I know many of you, most of you, are busy working hard because if you didn't know what you do, it wouldn't get done. But do you know that God is working with you in that? Have you asked him? Are you relying on him? Praying about what we do enables us to see the task as a shared one. Because I'm not doing this single-handed anymore, but God is empowering, directing, inspiring, enabling my work. And why not make it a three-way partnership? Why not get someone else to pray for you in what you do as well? It's not just me and God, and I'm praying and he's working and we're working together, but actually somebody else is part of the equation. That way you don't carry the double burden of working and praying single-handed. Instead, someone else is praying with you and for you. That is a very effective team then. You, God, and a prayer partner. Great things happen if that's the case. So if you're busy, who can you ask to pray for for you? Perhaps you can pray for them in what they're doing as well, because everything we do, we do in the name of Jesus and for his sake. And again, it doesn't take a massive amount of organisation to set up. Don't need to be asking Ryan to set everybody up in the church with a prayer partner. If you feel like you could do with someone praying for you, phone a friend. It's actually better that way, because it means prayer comes from the grassroots up rather than being imposed from the top down. And you may feel as if I've wandered rather a long way from Luke's account of Jesus visiting the temple. But I want to go back to it again. Because pondering the subject of this morning's sermon, my house shall be called a house of prayer, I found myself wondering how many times, at least according to Luke's gospel, Jesus had been in the temple before he pitched up that day, having ridden into Jerusalem on a donkey. And the answer is, according to Luke's narrative, only a couple of times. He'd spent a few days there when he was a youngster, after he bunked off the journey home from Jerusalem with his parents and spent his time in the temple courts asking questions of the religious leaders. I'm sure that was a vivid memory in his mind. Then he talked about being in his father's house. It had been a very significant occasion for him. Now, it may be that over the years since then he'd visited the temple regularly, And Luke just hasn't bothered to tell us about that. It's certainly the impression you get from John's Gospel. But the way Luke tells the story, it's like Jesus went back to Jerusalem in the temple for the first time when he rode in on Palm Sunday. And he found it not as he remembered it. Not a place where, as a young boy again, he'd be able to sit down and talk and and discuss God and, and feel that he was in his father's house. That wasn't the atmosphere there anymore. He went to his father's house and found a market. Prayer 
had moved off the agenda. And there's a challenge there. Because if over the years, prayer has slipped off our agenda as individuals or as a church, if it's been degraded or displaced from the centre of our life, then that's an issue that needs addressing. And we need to get it back to the core of what we do and make sure it's underpinning everything that we do. And the time before that, when Jesus had been in the temple, was when he was a baby. His parents took him to to present him to the Lord. And on that occasion, he was greeted by two old people, Simeon and Anna. And they were there to welcome him and take him in their arms and bless him. And Simeon was there because that day, he'd been moved by the Spirit of God to go to the temple and see the Messiah that he'd been waiting for years and years to meet. He was a man of prayer. He found himself in the right place at the right time, connecting with God's Son because the Spirit of God was working in his heart. And Anna, well, she wasn't there by accident. She spent a whole time in the temple, praying and fasting all hours of the day and night, single-handedly. She was making God's house a house of prayer. And that's why when Jesus was brought to the temple by his parents, she was there, ready to meet him ready for that moment of visitation, the moment when God came in his Son, Jesus Christ. But when Jesus rode into Jerusalem, despite all the crowds celebrating his progress down the Mount of Olives, Luke tells us that he wept over the city because the city did not perceive this was the moment. This was the Messiah. This was the Son of God. This was their king. And they they missed the moment because the temple was no longer a house of prayer. They were so busy doing all the other stuff that they weren't waiting on God. They weren't praying to God. They weren't open to God. And Jesus spelt out that that would have catastrophic consequences for the city. So, actually... Church keeps people busy, keeps us out of mischief, if you like, does me anyway. But if we're so busy with all the other stuff that prayer gets shunted to the edges, it's not a good thing. It means we're not ready for the moment when Jesus comes to us. We're not ready to meet him. We're not ready for the encounter, to hear what he has to say, to recognise what his will and purpose is for us. So, for our own sake as a church, for the sake of our town, and goodness knows for the sake of our nation, this church needs to be a house of prayer. And we all have a part to play in that. So that when God comes, we're ready. We're ready.